you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. Have I muted myself? There we go. Sorry about that. I knew red was bad, but I didn't know what I had done. <laughs> um, okay, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16 for this morning. Uh, we've, we've ended our study of the Beatitudes, and now we're sort of moving into the body of the sermon, as it were, the Beatitudes being the introduction. Uh, one commentator described the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' new members class. And I thought that was, a, uh, and the more I thought about it, I was like, that's, that's pretty appropriate, I think. It's, it's at first, this is who these, this blessed Christian life, uh, what this blessed Christian life is and who is a part of this kingdom, as described in the Beatitudes. And now, what's the expectation of you once you are a part of this kingdom? Sort of, what's, your, what's the expectation of you as a member of Westminster Presbyterian Church? Remember, Jesus is speaking to His disciples directly. There's lots of people listening in, but the message is mainly for them. And it's the transition which is really important for this text, because the last of the Beatitudes was, blessed are those of you who are persecuted, reviled even for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of God. So if that's the treatment that we can expect as God's people, how are we to react to that? verses 13 through 16. If the world, you would th- we wish the world would say, oh, this is great. These Christians are wonderful. They're going to be such a benefit to society. Not so. Often persecution, reviling, and all the rest. So what are we to do in return? Are we to be afraid? No. Are we to isolate ourselves? No. Are we to compromise? No. We are to be salt and light. We are to have an impact. We are not to treat in the way we have been treated. We are to love for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. With that in mind, let me read for us Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would teach us now from your word. Lord, would you help us to understand what it means to be salt and light in this world and to go and be salt and light in this world. And oh Lord, that we know that It is not light that we must come up with. We are reflecting your light. Indeed, you are the light of the world. And, O Lord, all this would be for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2018, at the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast in Westminster Hall in London, Tim Keller gave the keynote address. His message that day was entitled, What Can Christianity Offer in the 21st Century? And he chose as his passage for this particular message, the passage before us this morning, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 17. 
He was pleading with the leadership of British Parliament to allow Christians to continue to be salt and light in the world. His argument was that's how it has benefited the world ever since Christ went to the cross and then ascended into heaven. We were salt and light, he argued, for Christians, and we have benefited everywhere we have gone. Christians particularly have benefited Western society, he argued. And then he offered this thought experiment. He was quoting a, a college professor. He said, imagine this situation for a moment. He said, it's late at night and you're on a secluded street. And you see a little old lady crossing the street, and in her purse she has money that's heaping out of the side and precious jewels. And you have a choice. There's three things that you know about this situation. One, there's no way that this woman could prevent you from stealing that purse. Number two, you could steal it in such a way where she could not later be able to identify you. And then thirdly, for this thought experiment, at that time, it is not against the law for you to do this. So would you do it? Yes and no, and then why? So he posed, this professor did, this question to his class, and virtually every student said no, they would not do it. The interesting thing was the reason why they wouldn't do it. Everything fell into one of two categories. The students responded by saying, I wouldn't take that because really I would be seen as the weak one. How could I do this to someone else? It would look, I, I would be humiliated if anyone ever found out that I did this to someone so helpless. But the majority of the responses fell under reason number two, the first one being a self-regarding ethic, right? It, how, it would look bad on me, so I'm not going to do it. The second was an other-regarding ethic. I'm not going to do this because I can't imagine the pain and trauma it would cause this woman if this happened to her. I'd probably have to hurt her to get this purse away from her, and then maybe, maybe she really needed the money and her family depended on it and all the rest. It's th- I'm not going to do it because of the other person. And Keller's argument is an other-regarding ethic has been the prevailing opinion of Western society. And it's not because the unchristian and unbelieving or atheistic world has come up with that. They feel that way because of the influence of Christianity, this other-regarding morality. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from societies that have been dominated by Christianity. A self-regarding ethic has been dominated by cultures that has not had an influence or a pervading influence of Christianity. We see that in the West, and it's a wonderful thing. We care about other people. Maybe it's because it makes us feel better, but there's at least an other-regarding ethic, as he calls it. We think people need health care. They need clean water. They need mosquito nets. They need the hungry need to be fed. That is an influence, Keller argues, of Christianity. And, of course, it's the ethic of Jesus Christ, the perfect one who came and gave himself and emptied himself of who he was. In fact, the very people that hated and reviled him, he said to his heavenly Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Keller concluded his remarks, Christians will not benefit society if they are just like everyone else in society. So let Christians be salt and light. It will make the world better as it already has. A bit of a utilitarian ending to his message, unfortunately, but I think he was right. Christians have always thought to themselves, because they model their Savior, I know how they treat me, I'm not going to treat them the same. I am to love others. I am to live for the sake of others because that's what my heavenly Father did through the Son, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus has just told his disciples about how the world is going to treat them, what the world's going to say about them. It would make sense that they would have been afraid, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. It would have made sense for them to say, well, let's just sort of find our own little enclave over here. Let's all move to this one town, and we'll just be Christians together. No, he says, I want you to go out. Jesus gives different marching orders maybe than we would have expected. Two things I want us to see in this passage, obviously, I think. The salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's what we are to be as Christians. We are to prevent ungodliness. That's what salt does. We are to promote godliness. That's what light does. So number one, we are the salt of the earth. You know, what possible influence could the people described in the Beatitudes have on the world? They are poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin. They only hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're seeking mercy and seeking to make peace. Are these really the strong people that we need in society to make a difference? And well, Jesus says, yes, that's exactly what you're going to do. He does not share our skepticism. The world is deteriorating rapidly and decaying in its ungodliness. Christians are to slow that spread. There's two sides to this. One has to do with gospel proclamation, I think. That's shining the light of the world. The other says, wherever Christians go, they benefit society because ungodliness does not find a foothold as it would otherwise. We are to be that kind of salt. Wherever you find yourself, are you also participating in the ungodliness of what's going on? Are you trying to be salt? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Salt is used for several different things. As you know, in the ancient world, they didn't have refrigerators, so this was the way they preserved their food. But it's more than that. Salt, what else does salt do? It gives flavor to a meal. You put some salt in a big old vat of chili, it's going to make the chili taste better, right? What does salt do? You eat some nacho cheese Doritos, which I highly recommend, the greatest chip ever created, and they make you thirsty, right? And so you need water to drink. Salt does several things. It makes people thirsty, it preserves meat, right? And it adds flavor to something. It's exactly what Christians are meant to be. But there's, it's only effective if it stands out from the culture. So when we start thinking the way the culture does and living the way the culture does, we aren't salty anymore. We look just the same. There's no attraction there. There's, there's no thirst to know more. But I think Jesus' main point, I think the, the, the permeating the culture and the, and, and the evoking thirst, it's there. It's the, preserve, it's the preservation angle. Christians are not to wring our hands, not to groan about how bad things are becoming. Go into the world and make it better. This is not, a, this is not so that they'll be regenerated. It's so that you will help the places in which you live. You are salt. You are meant to bless where you are. And the more that we add the, the world's thinking to ourselves, the less effective we become. And again, Jesus is speaking in the context of what he has just said, the persecution of the disciples. 
Christians may seem small and insignificant. Salt doesn't cost anything. It may seem insignificant, yet it has a tremendous impact wherever it is found. It's the point Jesus is trying to make when he feeds the 5,000. They don't have enough money to feed everybody. Well, what do you have? We have these five little loaves and two fish. It doesn't look like much, but in the hands of Jesus, kaboom, that's all he needed. The power is not in the salt anyhow. The power is in Christ working in and through us. Yes, numerically we may not be what we want to be, or, or the influence may not be there, but it's really all about his influence through us anyway. Becky Pippert, in her book, the book title captures the imagination, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. She says this, The presence of Christ brings us his power and ability to use our limited resources in limitless ways. It's a great quotation from her, I think. Our morality, our uprightness, you living biblical lives, it positively impacts where you work, it positively impacts where you go to school, it positively impacts your neighborhood. At least it's intended to. If you were living out those distinct ways, do you have that kind of influence amongst your friends and amongst your teammates? Is everywhere Christian goes, everywhere we go as Christians, does it make it less fertile soil for ungodly influences, as one commentator said? It's all too easy for us to despair as Christians that we just don't have enough influence. You do. When you live out these things that Jesus has called us to live out, when we are these Beatitudes, it has tremendous impact, he says. Paul says in Colossians chapter 4 that our speech should be seasoned with salt. What does that mean? That your speech is distinct from others' speech. You don't talk the way they do. You, you don't despair the way the world does. There's something different about it. The Christian is meant to be different. How about the life of Joseph? In a completely pagan society, his love for God stood out. Pharaoh, I just want you to know that when I interpret your dream, it's not me, it's the living God. That's who gave, that is who is giving you this interpretation. How about the life of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? They didn't bow down to the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had made, and their life of faith in God impacted the place in which they lived. You know, the world really has, at times, I think, duped the church fooled the church by saying something like this. If you, know, if you just light up, lighten up on a few issues, then we'd be more interested in what you have to say. If you just change your worship a little bit, if you just lessen your expectations and stop being so dogmatic, then maybe we'd come and check you out. No, our distinctiveness is a part of our blessing. It's the sadness, really, of 1 Samuel chapter 8. When the people of God have just pleaded to Samuel, the high priest, the Philistines are coming, will you please intercede for us? He does, and God delivers them. In the very next chapter, the elders of Israel come to Samuel and say, look, your sons are a bunch of deadbeats, and it's time for us to have a king. So will you give us a king? Why do you want a king? Because we want to be like the other nations. But you're not. You're not like the other nations. You are, you, you are uniquely blessed, you are holy, and, you're, and you are set apart. But we want to be like everybody else. Now your blessing has been taken away. Now the salt has been 
truly taken away. It's the point of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. He doesn't say, Lord, will you take them out of the world? Will you keep them in the world? That they will preach my message, that they will bless the places that they go. Will you keep them holy into the world that I have sent them? How is this possible? This is possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must retain our saltiness. I don't mean being salty. That means you're argumentative. No, I mean you need to maintain the distinction. Not in a haughty way. We do that because we love Christ. We do that because we love the world. Secondly, it's the light of the world. So there's a preventing ungodliness angle, now a promoting godliness. Okay? The law functions the same way. The law is given to us to restrain evil. That's one of our functions as God's people. Another one of the functions of the law, how am I now to live in light of what Christ has done for me? I'm to be the light of the world. We are to allow the light of Christ that has been given to us in Jesus through faith and shine that back out into the world. We don't come with our up with our light ourselves. We reflect that which has been shown to us. God does not send us out powerless or in our own strength. In fact, he told the disciples, or he will uh, uh, later in his ministry here, that it's for their benefit that he leaves and sends the Holy Spirit. So there's a double influence. I've mentioned it twice. Let me say it again. There is a double impact. The world mistreats and persecutes. You go back out and you help to prevent ungodliness and to promote godliness. Let your light so shine before men, Jesus says, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There is a part of this that is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to others. But do you, did you listen specifically to what Jesus said? What does it mean to shine the light into the world? It means to do good works. Very narrowly, it means live as the Bible commands you to live in your sexuality. Live how the Bible commands you to live in your dealings, in your business, in the way that you treat other people, in the way that you do not despair, in the way that you grieve with hope, in a thousand other ways. That's the light that we shine. It's good works. Christianity is made most visible through the good deeds that we do. Well, what are these good works? Well, I've just mentioned many of them, and And they can't be carried out unless they come out of a heart of faith. Well, Christians live out the living Word of God, whether it's a command from the Sermon on the Mount or the Gospels or the the Ten Commandments, we are doing what Jesus instructs here. When we love our enemies, when the world does not, the world tastes the salt. It sees the light. When we pray for those who are in authority over us, even if we happen not to like them so much, that is salt and light. When we control our anger, when we control our lusts, when we tell the truth, the world sees this. What was the biggest impact that the early church had? They sold the things that they had, and they gave to the people that had need. And the world around them saw, wow, that's not what most people do. They treated women with respect. They they. They didn't have sex outside of marriage. 
It was something that the early church, wow, there's something different here. It was a preventing ungodliness and a promoting godliness. It was being salt and it was being light. And people, if there's something different going on there. The way that they love each other and care for each other, I want to go and see what's going on. So there's a connection here about our ethics and evangelism. It's something I realize it's not always has a drawing in effect. Sometimes it has a, an, an extra repelling effect, effect. But it is a part of our evangelism. Is your Christianity then, is it visible to others? Would your neighbors even have a clue that you call on the name of the Lord? Would your coworkers know that? You know, no doubt there is somebody in your life that, that you have been greatly impacted by their Christian example. And I don't mean the fact that they've told you correct theology. Maybe they have. They've lived it, and you got to see it. Lauren and I have some very dear friends that are going through a trial right now that's unimaginable. And we have both been deeply impacted by watching their faithfulness in the midst of it. Seeing them be faithful, grieve yet grieve with hope, shine the light of Christ into a situation where, man, if that was me, I don't know how I'd be acting. Haven't you been greatly impacted by watching someone live it out and to shine the light? I'm I'm sure you have. How is that possible? Well, Jesus is the light of the world, isn't he? He is the light of the world. He has poured that light into us, and now he commands us to do that to one another. The lamp is not to be hidden away. The Christian who has become the light of the world, we do not hide our light under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, the little the children's song we sing. Good theology, by the way. Very good theology. We don't take that which Christ gave us and hide it from people. No, we, we, take, we uncover it and let everyone see it. That's our holiness. It's our good deeds. You know, Peter echoes this thought when he says that you are, a, you are a people chosen to declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Whereas Paul says, this is what you once were, but no longer. You know, you know the darkness, don't you? You know what the darkness is like. And you're now meant to shine the light. And it's not just you are, you've been declared something new. Well, that's true, you have. But you now live something new. You don't live the way that you used to. When we know that the world is in opposition to us, we have one of two tendencies, Westminster. I think we all know that we are to be salt and light. But we all know that we live in a world that is full of darkness and sin. So we have one of two tendencies, and both are incorrect. Generally speaking, Westminster Presbyterian Church, our tendency is to the first one, withdrawal and isolationism. I'm speaking generally. I'm not saying every individual in here. I'm I'm making a general statement. Our tendency is to say, I'm afraid of the world. I don't have time for this. I'm going to isolate myself. And you'd be in good company because there's a lot of that in church history. That was the monastic movement. Many Christians have said, I need to distance myself. And yet Jesus says here, you're not going to do that. That's not what salt does, and that's not what light does. It is the doctrinalist position. 
It is the right-hand ditch, if you will, on the side of the road. It is the conservative view. Let's withdraw. The other tendency that we have as Christians is to compromise. This is not our tendency, by and large, here at Westminster. It is the culturalist position. It is the left-hand ditch on the side of the road. We can get along with the world better if we would just give in to the world a little bit, if we would just compromise, if we'd sort of rub the edges off of our doctrine and thinking. Both need to seek how they are appropriately to relate to the world. The compromisers don't do a good job at preventing ungodliness, right? The doctrinalists don't do a very good job of getting into the world as salt. Christians, we must be distinct, distinct in our thinking, distinct in our living, but in the world. We must be concerned for it. Yes, the world is sinful. That's true. Yes, there is a danger in living around ungodliness. That's right. But our temptation is to remove ourselves altogether. We will not be salt if all we ever do is pull away from society, to reject our non-Christian friends, or just be afraid of them out there. I can't associate with them. They may corrupt me or my children or my business. Is there wisdom that we use? Of course there is. Is, there, do we, is it an unfettered thing? Of course not. But our tendency is not to think like that. Our tendency is just to pull away completely. If I'm, all I am ever concerned with is my walk with God and whether I'm doing right or wrong, I'll be as bland as they come. We should be good neighbors, but you're only going to be a good neighbor if you know your neighbors. You should be a good coworker, but do you know your coworkers? It should be that the people of Johnson City couldn't possibly imagine if Westminster Presbyterian Church vanished tomorrow. It would leave such a hole in the community here. People should be glad that you are a member of this church. You are kind, you are helpful, you are loving. But why is our tendency to isolate? It's because we have rema- often we have remained in the salt shaker and not out in the world. We withdraw from public life. We start our own sports leagues, and we don't participate in the ones in the community. We have no time for unconverted and unchurched people because we are so busy with our own religious activities. Quite frankly, if I can be just super candid for a minute, Westminster, it's one of the concerns that I have as we begin more programs here at this church. I'm excited about them because I do think it will benefit greatly our fellowship and our discipleship, but... Will it leave us any time at all to be salt and light in the dying world that God is calling us to right here? We can be excited about all the Bible studies that we attend and the programs that we do and the fact that we were here every time that the doors were open, but have we lost our saltiness? Because that was the predominant feeling of the Christian world that I grew up in. I was there every time the doors were open, and I took a lot of pride in that, as perhaps you did as well. And what did we do? We built massive suburban churches and we hid our lives under the bushel of this beautiful building. But we walked away from the world and we isolated ourselves in church activities and had no impact on the world. And then we peeked our head out of the church one day and we were shocked at the darkness that we saw. It's because we weren't salt and light. I love church activities. I love discipleship. And I love the, the growing that we want to do as a church, but are we giving of ourselves? 
Do we know non-Christians? Do we want to be salt and light? Do we want to have an impact? Do we want to restrain and promote? Or we seek to be salt and light in the wrong ways. We want to win a culture war. We want to get right people in office, whatever in the world that even means now. It's what we're most passionate about. When is the last time we got worked up about really being evangelistic? And if we're honest, our political behavior is the least salty thing about us. We look just like everybody else. We get angry and we get fearful and despair just like everybody else. It isn't in any way distinct. We are to be salt and light on the sports field and at the PTA meetings and at the office and the country club and and wherever we go. That's what we were always meant to be. Yes, we gather for worship. We do our small groups and our Bible studies. But do we leave ourselves time to go and be in this world? And do we go out in the confidence and the power of the Holy Spirit? Are we just afraid what someone might say if they see us with tax collectors and sinners? It is this other-centered ethic that Christ has called us to. It's the ethic that he modeled his whole life. He gave himself for you. Isolationism is not going to work. Compromise is not going to work. He emptied himself. He gave of himself. He cried out from the cross, as I mentioned earlier, forgive them for they know not what they do. He did it because he loved. For God so loved the world. The Father loved us. How do we know that? He sent the Son. And now he wants to send us... These Christians, these little anointed ones, quite literally, these little lights to do exactly what he has done in this world. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Well, he also described himself as what? I am the light of the world. He wants us to do what John the Baptist did. I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. That's what John the Baptist, he's constantly diverting people's attention over to him, and that indeed is what we are to do. Let's not hide our candle under a bushel. Let's expose it. And I think Jesus here is really priming the pump what he is going to do at the very end of Matthew's gospel, and he's going to deliver the Great Commission. Go. Go into all the world. Teach them all that I have commanded, and I will be with you. I will be with you, Jesus says. It's a wonderful task. It's a privilege that he has given us to go and to spread his word. Let us do it with gladness. It may not be received well, but Lord willing, people will be thirsty for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord willing, the light will shine into the dark places and it will make it light once again. And the people will praise God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this admonition from your word, oh, Lord, that we would seek to do this. You would show us the ways we can be salt and light. And, oh, Lord, that we would do it for your sake. Grant us the boldness. Grant us the humility. And, Lord, would you add to the kingdom of God today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction and then remain standing as we sing the doxology?
And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.